0: to The Lubbers Hole, the Patrick O'Brien podcast. Not just a Patrick O'Brien podcast, the Patrick O'Brien podcast. Whichever podcast it is, you're welcome along to be with Ian. And with Mike. As we reread our favourite series of novels, the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, we're in new territory now, aren't we? Tell us where we got to last week and where we're headed to this week.
1: Oh, be delighted Ian. yeah. Last week in Chapter One of Nutmeg of Consolation, the Navy and the Marines had both won their cricket game, and Stephen proved very successful hunting wild game. You know, providing food for everyone else as the island's resources continued to diminish. Jack was fearing the crew's reaction to St. Famine's Day, that day then they run out of alcohol and tobacco for the crew, and they're building this new schooner to take them to Batavia, and, and it's coming along really nicely. Well, as we kind of got to the end of the chapter, everybody was really excited about this scantily clad dyak leader's agreement to take a list of supplies to Raffles, but Stephen had doubts about her and worried that she'd seen too much of the camp's shipbuilding tools, the supplies, the silver, and their poor defenses. Jack, however, is kind of counting down the hours, minutes, and seconds, waiting for Sunday, the earliest that he thinks a boat from raffles might arrive with their desperately needed supplies. Well, this time, that Dayak warrior, kasagaran and the, the Dayaks return. Welby and the Marines shine once more. Everybody there in camp pitches in together in the face of great adversity. We find out that there's no widow's cruise in sight, just some Mm. Dublin horse, which, as it turns out, goes well with Patrick O'Brien's family wine. Stephen (laughs) reconciles himself with the false swallows, and these swiftlets prove that their worth is more than just their edible nests.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Some really fascinating associations there to follow up with Dublin and Horse. Anyway, Mike, here we are at the beginning of chapter two. We start out in darkness. It's uh, the middle of the night or getting towards the end of the night. And Stephen, waking up in the morning darkness, decides that he's going to open up to Jack. He says, another misery of human life is having a contubinal that snores like ten. I was not snoring, said Jack. I was wide awake. What is a contubinal? You, said Stephen. You are a contubinal. And I love Jack's rejoinder. He doesn't know what's going on here, but he decides to join in the the playground tit for tat. Well, you're a contubinal as well, kind of he who smelt it dealt it, sort of a thing. But it turns out that Jack and and Stephen are both correct. If they are occupying the same tent, then they are indeed contubinals. And I think it's used by some authors to mean familiar or intimate relationship partners. This is a really, really miles deep O'Brien reference here. Very, very rarely used word according to Google Engram. I, I, I was expecting a dad joke. I was expecting Aubrey to misunderstand it and go, how dare you call me a contubinal? My wife and I are happily married or <laughs> something like that. So anyhow, Jack protests that he was awake. He'd been planning what to do on Sunday if Raffles' stores were to come in. And uh, Stephen says, well, I think I hear thunder. So early morning, they're in the tent. They hear thunder. Jack says, it's okay. It's just the carpenter and the bosun getting the tar kettle going. Joe Gower gigging, fishing for nighttime stingrays. And this is all great and it's sounding very bucolic and a little bit of banter between Stephen and Jack. But we get the tone of the chapter right away here because waiting for the smell of the tar, Mike, they hear... A furious, confused bellowing, the sound of blows, and an immensely loud, bubbling scream that died in agony. I like, un- unless that's a Russa, I think we have some bad things going on in the camp here.
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Ian. I mean, this thing just like poof, you know we're we you're ripping the band-aid right off here on after oh, yeah. <laughs> two here. Yeah. Jack runs to the breastwork. It's dark, but there are lights moving out. They're moving below the camp. They're moving out over the sea. And, and from the light of the tar kettle flames, it, it appears that there's a large vessel just offshore. One of the carpenter's men runs up the hill telling them that black men have killed the carpenter and Gower and are stealing all the ship's tools. And Jack orders beat to quarters. And as, as he does, more men are coming up the hill carrying, you know, some of them carrying the bleeding bosun here. Well, in the daylight, Jack sees a huge double-hauled proa uh, with intense lines of men carrying out tools and cordage, sailcloth, metalwork, as others stand by some of their dead friends, but a lot of dead enemies. And Welby wants to open fire, but Jack's thinking, whoa, 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 hold on, how much powder do we have? And it turns out it's like two rounds, uh, you know, for every Marine, and Jack says, no, we're not gonna fire at this distance. And through his glass, Jack sees them cutting off the carpenter's head, as they've done to the other dead Diane's down there, uh, you know, below the camp. Well, he also notices there are two dead Dayaks or Malays. uh, you know, it looks like it's a mixed group, And one of them is that woman we remember from chapter one, Ah, Well, one of the Carpenters' party says that Gower killed her with a fishing gig after she'd slit another crew member's throat. And, you know, I I think that uh, O'Brien actually writes Mr. White's throat, but Mr. White is the gunner up there. I think O'Brien met Mr. Hadley's throat, the, uh, the Carpenter. Oh, good spot. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, we get another reference that it's probably Hadley because, you know, this Gunner's Maid is saying about how it comes naturally to Goward to avenge Hadley's death. Uh, O'Brien writes, it came naturally to him being a queen, Q-U-E-A-N, as they say, and a carpenter's maid. Uh, and, I, and I think here we're... You know, this is this is O'Brien alluding to a relationship, perhaps between car, you know Carpenter's mate or the Carpenter and Gower here.
0: Yeah, I think so. I I, I don't know for sure. I think Queen's being used here as a slang word to mean the gay man. I'm not sure that that necessarily means that he thinks that the Carpenter and Carpenter's mate were together. But I think he's Carpenter's mate, so he would naturally stand up and, and avenge the death of his ah. uh, of his petty officer. And by the way, he's okay striking out at a woman because he you know he, he bats at that end of the. Uh, of the, ah, of the pitch, anyway. Nice, nice. Oh, I fine. guess. A, I guess an I amazing don't. world you paint for us here. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All, all in a few sentences. Well, now we're back focusing on Jack and his action and his orders and what they're going to do next. He orders the gunner, Mister White, the real Mister White, to um, oh, have to have the canons ready, uh, and they're going to load them with grape. And this is clearly like anti-personnel time. We're going to try and do as much damage to this inbound band of Dyaks and Malays as we can white says he's unsure about the forward carronade he feels better about the after carronade and the nine pounder so they're really not that confident that their powder is gonna really produce the results that they're hoping for jack says well let's take a few precautions uh, change your flannel i think he means the, the the fuse or the slow match mix in some priming and let them air while the looting continues below So we've taken care of the firearms. We've now got to take care of the other small arms. Boarding pikes and cutlasses have been served out as they're waiting for the next attack. Jack sends the hands to breakfast, watch by watch. And Mike, we've always had this, and I always love it, that Jack keeps the the ritual and the timing and the convention of seagoing life ashore as much as he can. And you can really see why it pays off here. Um, He's keeping their daily rituals going. He's sending them to breakfast, watch by watch. And he sends them out to make sure that they've scavenged up every source of powder, you know, shakings in people's pockets, contents of, you know, rockets and whatever else. Stephen then joins Jack asking if he should go down and parley, try to make peace. And Jack's not got high hopes of this. He points out that Kesagaran is one of their dead. He says Stephen's likely to be killed himself if he goes down to the water's edge. One side, he says, in these kind of situations, is going to have to beat the other entirely he says this is now this is it now we're in combat and we've got to see the combat through Stephen reports that he has managed to sew the bosun up but gives this very grim description of the bosun's injury he says he'll never dance again one of the injuries was a severed hamstring and nice little touching moment as jack reflects on the fact that the guy loved to dance and he's not going to be dancing anymore
1: What Jack notices is that these dyaks that are kind of forming up below are putting on white jackets. And Stephen says, we know I saw them on the guards at Prabang. And supposedly, they're full of this padding that will turn a bullet. So, you know, interesting attack forming up again here. Uh, Two coffee pots later, so they're, they're drinking coffee, watching below. They notice that down below, the looting seems to have stopped. And Welby, the Marine officer, has been watching them carefully. There's this man in a green headcloth who's who's been directing little parties into the trees. And, uh, you know, apparently a number of men run in. A few of them come back and try to draw their attention to themselves as they come back. But Welby's been keeping count here, going, yeah, they're leaving a lot more people in the trees than they're bringing back. And he also notices that they appear to be hiding men under the bank where they can't be seen from the camp. So Welby tells Jack, He thinks they're preparing to attack the earthwork and then fall back, hoping that the sailors and Marines will leave the brassworks, uh, you know, and chase after them only to be flanked and cut to pieces by the men in the trees and by the ones on the bank on the other side. So he also wants Jack to be sure that he understands that they've got about 300 men and the Dianes have, you know, at best about 150 Jack is very appreciative of Welby's battlefield experience.
0: Welby's having a good tour, isn't he? Uh, (laughs) He was was kind of held back by Jack from overcomplicating the breastwork. It sounds like all of his groundwork and breastwork have have really paid off here. He's absolutely in command of the tactical situation. Maybe Jack would have spotted the same thing, but he's having a great time. I'm really pleased for Welby. Yeah,
1: I'm loving that.
0: So, Jack's glad to have Welby's experience and it turns out that the fight breaks out pretty much as Welby had predicted. A half-pound ball from a swivel gun hits the breastwork and a rounded stone from the gingol, I think that's how you pronounce it, on the proa, flies overhead. I- I've no idea if I'm pronouncing it right, but Mike, from a, from a quick look online, it seems that the gingle is a large matchlock gun that's fired from a rest with a one-inch bore. And it- this gives me images of kind of 16th century muskets on kind of on kind of tripods here um, so it's a bigger shot than a musket but it's smaller than a swivel gun and this is one of the few firearms that the dykes have they don't actually have muskets themselves the white jacketed spearmen gather up below the, the fortifications here and jack gives the old traditional whites of their eyes order he says each marine should fire only one shot only when they're sure of killing their man and then fix bayonets like, I, I was getting little echoes here of Zulu. You come across Zulu, the Michael Caine movie set in the World War. In come these Dayaks and, and Malays. The Marines fire 20 to 30 shots when they're very, very close. And now we're into packed fighting. There are spears and pikes, swords and bayonets on the earthworks. Sounds a lot like a boarding action, to be honest. Right? There's a shout from a chief. And just as well be we had predicted, the attackers turn and run. They just about hold on to discipline here among the Dianes. A dozen sailors do in fact follow them as they run away but Jack and Fielding and Richardson call them back. The fleeing Dianes stop halfway down the hill and taunt the camp. And now there's the moment for some decisions about when to use the very, very last rounds of powder that they've got. Jack calls for the forward carronade and I think all the fears that he and the gunner had had about tainted powder are coming true here. The flint fails on the first pull. And on the second pull, there's a small pop and a gentle shower of grape kind of puff, pops out of the uh, the mouth of the cannon and falls down the hill. The Dayaks think this is hilarious. They howl with laughter. Some of them waving their penises, others showing their buttocks. And Mike, th- this isn't just Zulu and Michael Caine here. We're getting another movie reference as well here, right?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't help. Uh, it, you know, two things came immediately to mind. First, you know, Monty Python and the French taunting, you know, up, from <laughs> up top the castle, and and I think you and I both were kind of thinking about the Braveheart, uh, you know, the moon scene. Yeah, yeah, Braveheart. yeah. So, you know, two two great references out here. I don't know if there's any way to put any of that in our socials, but uh, you know, it is nice of O'Brien in the midst of this intense conflict to put a little bit of a smile on our faces here.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: The Dayak reinforcements now come up from under where they, you know, had hidden. They join the others, and everybody charges back up the hill. Jack calls for the aftercaronade. This is the one that White was more sure of, and boom, the, the orange smoke goes off. There's a great crash, and when that smoke clears, there's at least a score of Dyaks dead, and the others are retreating here. So the mixed Dyak and Malay forces are busy below. The swivel gun is firing intermittently. Both sides kind of stop for dinner. They, they kind of see the Dyaks lighting their fires down on shore. And they say, you know, let's do the same. And Jack and this Dyak chief are watching each other closely the whole time. Now, Jack's thinking to himself, you know, I know Stephen could bring their chief down with his rifle from right here, but he also knows that Stephen wouldn't do it. And, and Jack's kind of considering that. You know, he thinks, well, you know, I'm really pleased when a broadside clears the enemy quarterdeck, but he would never shoot their leader in cold blood, mm. both out of perhaps illogical sacredness of an opposing commander and this, what O'Brien writes as perceptible but indefinable difference between killing and murder, a difference which Jack thinks to himself wouldn't apply to a sharpshooter or even in a very humble melee so we've had kind of this ongoing little theme about life and death and taking life and everything, and here's Jack right in the midst of it.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it's the last time in the chapter that we're going to hear about Stephen, kind of on the brink between do I do I pursue this warlike character or somebody who's going to fight at all costs, or do I have some moral reservations? Have I got some ethical reservations about taking right, life? Right. It's oh, I wonder what Babarucha. could be on his mind. Yeah. Let's see. Good. Um. The swivel gunner from among the Malays and Dyaks there is consistently either hitting the embankment or just skimming over it with every shot. So there's, they've got to keep their heads down there on the side of the British. Um, Stephen has to deal with anybody whose heads aren't kept down, which implies he's having to treat a few people that have got wounds to their upper body. Richardson notes that the enemy's out of water. He's noticed that they're furiously trying to dig wells. And this is absolutely Welby back again to the fore. He says, yeah, I noticed it. I think that they had assumed that they'd be drinking from the camps well by now. And lack of water is going to be a really pressing problem for these forces. Um, Again, I love Welby's kind of knowledge of the whole logistics and tactics of it all. It's great. This seems like it's a favorable sign. The purser says, I think the odds are evened. And if there's any more fighting like that, we will have an advantage here on the camp. Side of things, whereas before maybe the advantage was with the invaders. The master says, "Well, uh, I'm I'm not sure. They might well sail off. They might come back then with three times as many." And he thinks that actually taking out their transport, sinking the proa, might be the way to go. One cannonball, and we could knock it to pieces. Jack, however doesn't want to do that write-off because that would mean sharing the few remaining resources on the island with 200 thirsty and hungry and murderous villains. And he hopes that they leave for, for reinforcements because he thinks in whatever time it'll take them to go away and come back, we could get the schooner completed and be gone before they come back from their home, which is likely to be in Borneo. As this conversation is going on, Mike, the the fact that the, the fight is ongoing is brought back to us here really starkly as the purser says, oh, like he's just had a new idea, just as the swivel and the gingle fire hit the sandbag by him, and it turns out that he's he's dead. And I remember reading this thinking, oh, he must have taken a round to the chest, but no, he hasn't been hit by a round at all. His, his heart's failed as he's been just in the cannonade here.
1: Right. Well, they've collected and, and overhauled all the powder that they can, and they now have enough, they say, for each of the carronades and the nine-pounder and a half a flask left over for Stephen's rifle. So (laughs) yeah, we still have to eat after the battle's over here. Yeah. Well, Jack orders the guns all reloaded while they're hot in order to kind of make the powder brisk. So if it's still Mm. a little damp, put them in the hot guns, that's going to work. And he says he wants their single nine pounder ball. You know, they only have the one carefully chipped oiled and polished Wow! Oh. and they have to load their cannonades with grape, since all their case shot was you know left in the diane when she was broken up on the reef here
0: and as jack is making preparations for the for the gunnery side of things Welby, god bless him is still on top of what's happening with the distribution of land forces he reports that he's noticed 29 camouflaged men camouflaged in that their spears are wrapped up in leaves moving through the forest. This is very kind of contemporary sounding warfare, really, isn't it? He believes that they're trying to go around, take the camp from the rear and grab the silver while there's a distracting attack, a faint attack uh, from the front. And Jack says, well, that's all very well. But they mustn't realize then that the landslide has swept the earth away behind the camp. A few men, he says, can actually defend that shocking great drop. So now, what looked like an interesting defensive problem for the Dians turns out to be an interesting attacking problem for the Dayaks and the Malays here. Welby points out that it is indeed true that Kesegaran, who he calls the young person, wouldn't have seen that drop in the ground when she visited. So these folks who are going around doing this flanking maneuver don't realize the tough situation they're going to be in. So Jack, Reddy's Reed and Harper and Welby's best eight marksmen with one round apiece to defend the rear this is going to be a great advantage to the team here if they can pull this off he hopes that the marksman taking out a quarter of the attackers before the assault begins will discourage the rest and 25 20- percent casualties in an assault i think would discourage anybody the much expected frontal attack begins the proas Guns are firing rapidly. The men are running diagonally across the open slope. They're setting off firecrackers, like the firecrackers that we had in Pulau Prabang. They're setting those off in the woods as some kind of a distraction. Um, Jack sends Killick and Bondon and the eight Marines off with Seymour to guard the Silver, while everybody else in the crew makes sure that this frontal attack, which we think is a feint, doesn't actually turn ugly.
1: Yeah, the, the frontal attack... It turns out it does not turn ugly, but the rear one really does. You know, it turns out that you know these attackers had picked the people going around the back for their strength and their courage, and they don't even pause when the marksman cuts down. You know, the first eight that are running to the foot of the wall. O'Brien writes, Killick, beside himself with pale hatred and fury, flung great stones down upon them, helped on either hand by the marines, all the captain's bargemen, and his coxswain. Again and again, a dyak would make a back for another, and up he would come, spear poised, only to be flung back at pike point, pierced through with a cutlass, or smashed with a 50-pound stone. And presently, there were no more to come. Mm -hmm. Seymour, nominally in command, had to beat on the men's backs to prevent them stoning the few dreadfully shattered cripples who were crawling off among the rocks." You know, and Killing just just continues to stand there after they're all done in glaring at the woods, holding a boarding axe up in one hand and a big, large rock in another. So, you know, I, I think this this is an ugly thing. It was very successful, but very ugly. Yeah. Under the intense heat, the frontal diversion peters
0: out. Did you have any kind of a, a, a double meaning on your mind there, Mike?
1: <laughs> right, right. Like, I didn't when I wrote it. And then I realized, you know, O'Brien hopefully is chuckling somewhere going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have put that in there. Right? Yeah. yeah, Peter's out as opposed to Peter's put away. Yeah, OK. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Welby thinks that even though they've kind of lost all conviction on this, this frontal attack, that their general can't turn back now. They've lost all these men. They've got nothing to show for it. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a death or glory kind of cove. So he's expecting one more all or nothing charge at the embankment. Um, and then while he's talking, he realizes, oh, my God, the enemy has set fire to the schooner. You know, they see the the smoke coming up. So the whole camp, O'Brien writes, burst out in a yell of desperate anger, frustration and plain grief. You know, so this is, you know, oh my God, you know, we're winning this battle, but... You know, we may have lost the war here. Yeah. You know, now we're you know, going to be trapped on this island again. Jack orders the gunners to reload the carronades with their very best round shot, chipped as smooth as they can in the next five minutes. So, you know, like, you know, we're, we're seeing Welby, you know, doing such an incredible job, surveillance of the enemy, figuring out what they're doing. And Jack here
0: thinking ahead.
1: I, I love how this thing is, is kind of transpiring here.
0: Yeah, and I, it's a real twist in the gut as well when the uh, the schooner catches fire. As you say, oh. Mike, everybody realizes that it was all going so well with Welby and the flanking and all the rest of it. But now, even if they win, as you say, the, this 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 ground action, they're going to be uh, stuck.
1: Yeah, and definitely, if they get out of here alive and come back with more, yep. they're sitting ducks now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: The enemy comes straight up the hill then with a furious run straight at the guns, showing no fear, but not in any kind of formation. So the fastest of them reaches the breastworks first in tens rather than fifties, as the text says here. And they can't get through the mast pikes and the bayonets of the seamen who are defending here. The chief, the guy with the green head cloth, he arrives in the second wave. He's slashing blindly at a seaman, but his own head is split open by an axe and there's this really intense description from O'Brien in the text here. It was cruel fighting, kill or be killed, all in a great roar of sound and a clash of swords and spears, grunting and dust, sometimes a shriek. For what seemed a great while, the enemy never fell back except for another spring forward. But the Dyaks and Malays were fighting uphill against an enemy in close contact with strong voiced, competent naval and military commanders and sheltered by a moderate breastwork. Besides, however great their courage, they were smaller, lighter men than the English, and at a given point, when there was a general withdrawal on the right and centre, a regrouping for a fresh assault, Jack Aubrey felt the turn of the tide. He called out, Mr. Welby, charge. Diane's, follow me. And Mike, I love the very matter-of-fact delivery here, and we don't get You know, lots of melodrama about Jack kind of standing up and waving the troops on. He just says, okay, Marines, charge, Diane's, you're with me. The whole camp then leapt onto the wall with a cheer. The drum beat and they all hurled themselves forward. After the first frightful clash, the Marines wait and their exact order bore all before them. It was a rout, a total disastrous rout. The Dyaks ran for their lives and mike it's 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 turning out to be a bad day in the end for the Dyaks.
1: It, it it really is you know now there is one advantage to being a little bit lighter and for running for your lives they they're faster than the Englishman going downhill and they're into the water swimming for the proa and on shore jack's wiping this blood from his eye from a blow that he never knew that he got and he asks Fielding to see what can be done, if anything, for the scooter and orders the gunner and the gun crews to follow him back up the hill. And, and Jack is really feeling his weight now as he's trying to get back up the hill. Uh, he reaches the guns, Bondin, you know, a faster runner is already there. He gives Jack a hand up over the parapet and tells him that the pro is already underway, working hard in an awkward breeze in this ebbing tide to pass the Baird Reef and weather the West Point with its its shocking riptide. The gunner says, you know, I've got some more match in my tent. And Jack looks down and says, well, you know, don't need it. You know, the the match, amazingly untouched by the fighting there at the breastwork, still has half a glass left. And God love us, whispers the gunner, thinking that, my God, surely they've been fighting for much longer than that. That match should have burned out. I guess that's how quick and intense all of this has been.
0: It's a really great little touch to remind us of how time is really, really flying by for the people involved in this combat, and they're not realising just how little the minutes and seconds are that have gone by. (sighs) We all have to take a breath, because it's time to lay this gun, it's time to take care of the proer. Jack and the gunner line up the first carronade and they pitch it higher. Jack watches the ball, it says in the text, so intently that only his heart remembered to rejoice that the powder had proved sound, beating so hard it almost stopped his breath. The line was true, the ball short by 20 yards. <sighs> so, one carronade done, it's a miss. Might we're down to the last one or two rounds in, in, in the whole shooting match here. Jack runs to the nine-pounder, his favourite, favourite gun in the world, shouts orders for the other carronade shot, its shot is true, but falls just ahead of the pro. Oh, my gosh. How many roll rounds are we going to get? How many chances are we going to have? Jack heaves on the handspike, shifts a trifle to the right, claps the match to the touch hole. like we've been here before many times getting really up close and personal with Jack's own point of view, Jack's own hand on the, uh, on the laying of the gun here. The pro's helmsman puts the helm hard over to avoid the ball and sails right into the point of his fall just as jack had suspected it would hence the last minute adjustment there's no splash and all hands are looking at each other wondering what's going on and then suddenly everything disintegrates the two hulls of the proa fall apart the sail collapses and the vessel falls to pieces everything moving fast for the west overfall so mike it's it's a bad day for the proa and it's a bad day for anybody who was embarked on the proa as it tried to get away there
1: yeah steven comes up from the surgery to see what all the cheering is about. And Jack points over to the destroyed proa and with it and its men sweeping into that, that riptide that, that really nobody, as you say, nobody's going to survive here. So no reinforcements are going to be arriving here from the Malays and dyaks. Stephen notes that, that Jack looks sad though, you know, in the midst of this big victory and Jack tells him that they fired the schooner and he's pretty sure that none of it's going to be able to be saved and sure enough fielding returns and he gives Jack joy of his glorious shot, but reports that indeed none of the schooner could be saved despite everyone's zeal and personal risk. So the schooner is gone and the cutter, as it turns out, is also gone.
0: Oh man. So the camp is safe for now, but Mike, they're, they're stranded. And, uh, i think we all might need to take a moment here just to go and check the lay of the land i think we all might need to go and check that our small craft or where, where we last left them and that nothing's caught fire so maybe this is a time for a short break and we'll be right back in just a few moments if you're enjoying the podcast please come and join our supporters on patreon go to patreon.com forward slash hole Welcome back. We hope everything's okay. No untoward fires on the horizon for wherever you are. Um, We're back with Jack and Stephen and the crew of the Diane taking stock of where they are now that this action seems to be over. Hearing that nothing on the schooner could be saved, Jack says, I'm sure you and all hands did their best, but it was a hopeless blaze by the time we reached it. They had certainly spread tar fore and aft. However here we get optimistic jack it's all going to be okay here we are alive and most of us fit for duty we have many of poor mr hadley's tools there's timber all around us and i have no doubt we shall find a solution and jack hopes that these words come across as cheerfully as he means them and he hopes that they're going to carry some conviction but he's really not sure the sadness That follows, and we mean this particularly for Jack, I think. The sadness that follows a a big battle has started setting in on Jack. To some degree, it was the prodigious contrast between two modes of life. In violent hand-to-hand fighting, there was no room for time, reflection, enmity, or even pain unless it was disabling. Everything moved with extreme speed, and and we saw that from them disbelieving the slow match earlier on. Cut and parry with a reflex as fast as a sword thrust, eyes automatically keeping watch on three or four men within reach, arm lunging at the first hint of a lowered guard, a cry to warn a friend, a roar to put an enemy off his stroke, and all this in an extraordinarily vivid state of mind, a kind of fierce exaltation, an intense living in the most immediate present. And that's O'Brien describing the exaltation of battle. And then he goes on and talks about what sets in afterwards. Whereas now, time came back with all its deadening weight, uh, living in relation to tomorrow, to next year, a flag promotion, children's future. So did responsibility, the innumerable responsibilities belonging to the captain of a man of war, and decision. And it's a very, very poetic. It's a really striking and sobering change in perspective for Jack so quickly, after the after he's been through this. And again, Mike, we've had this before. Aran really likes writing about the exaltation of living in the moment in battle, and he always juxtaposes it with the the, the down that comes afterwards. Right. Unlike the split second decisions made by eye and sword hand, he now has time to brood over these decisions, and this brooding is going to eat away at Jack. It's going to eat away at his contentment, for what it's worth, and his leisure.
1: Yeah. But Jack looks around for a midshipman to send a message off, and he doesn't see any of them. And so he calls bonded and and you know, O'Brien inserts here the invulnerable bonded. and I, I don't know about you, Ian, but I, I got kind of a cold chill when I read this. Mm. you know I, I didn't like this adjective, you know, I, I guess it's maybe like you know grab a belaying pin or knock on wood, you know. Don't don't tell me somebody is invulnerable. You know, it, it kind of sets me up the wrong way, especially somebody I love as much as Bonden. Well, yeah. Jack asks Bonden to see if the doctor, you know, if, if a visit would be convenient. Bonden says, "I i." But then he says to Jack, "You know, you, you've got this nasty trough here on your on your skull." He's tapping on his own skull and you know, says, that should, "You know, Jack should have the doctor take a look at it when he sees him." And as Bonden leaves, Richardson limps up the hill to report that all the Navy and the Marine dead on the lower and middle ground have been beheaded. And so they really can't even identify some of the bodies. And he's asking, you know, what do we do? What do we do with our bodies? What do we do with the enemy bodies, the natives here? It's, it's kind of that, that aftermath. Ah. Yeah. Bonded Return says the doctor can see Jack in five minutes. And and Jack, you know, O'Brien tells us that every man has his own five minutes. <laughs> Jack <laughs> is a little shorter than Steven's. He shows up at Stephen's 10, just as Stephen is carrying out this slender amputated arm. And Jack is asking whose it is, but Steven's telling Jack, you know, sit down. I gotta I gotta check that scalp out. And and while he's tending Jack, he tells him it's Weed's arm taken off at the shoulder, and that luckily. You know, when Reed was hit by the swivel gun, it knocked his head against a rock. So he was actually unconscious when Stephen took his arm off. And Stephen adds, with the blessing, he may do well. Stephen tells Jack that he doesn't have a count yet, but the list of dead and wounded will be a long one. Uh, he says, you know, in the midshipman's berth, Butcher, Harper and Bennett are dead or dying and Reed will have only one arm. So just one example of mm. the toll that it's taken on the crew here. Jack bends his head so Stephen can clip his hair to get at the wound better. And O'Brien tells us, you know, with that bent head, tears fall steadily, you know, on Jack's folded hands. Now, we've read out kind of a list of the dead here. Interestingly when uh, we get a few chapters back, one of them will be back alive again. <laughs> so oh, I think we've okay. got a couple of places where we're, and, and, and we'll actually have Stephen recounting the dead to uh, raffles as well. So there's a great PDF. Uh, you can find it on the internet called the butcher's bill it should have been made into a book. Never was, but does a really great minute by minute accounting of the living and dead and promotions and everything else. So, so I went back to that source to go, was it me or are we, you know, are we seeing some inconsistencies? And and in fact, we are, but that's all right. We love oh, the story.
0: It's a great find. And Mike, this is a little vignette. This calls to mind for me, the moment at the end of the first big action in Master and Commander, the Peter Weir movie. We've got this combination of the, the visual of Stephen tending to Jack and dressing a cut on his head. And also the visual of a very young child, the midshipman in, in the movie, oh. it was Lord Blakeney yes. having his arm amputated. And I, I, I wonder whether Peter Weir and the script writers had this moment in mind when they conjured that back up in, uh, in far side of the world. Huh. So this was a somber moment in the movie and it's a somber moment, I think for the crew here, there's a mass burial. Uh, when you count the diax, there are more dead on the on the island now than alive. Many others have picked up infections and are going to die over the following days. So it's a real slaughter after this battle. Stephen, who's back in uh, in his role as the hunter for the party, can find only one small babirusa. The remaining ring-tailed apes are too small to shoot. So we're looking again at a situation where there's little food. There's a final death among the people who are under Stephen's care. This time it's a young Dayak who had shown complete trust in Stephen and he takes the death of this young guy really hard. This guy had said, I will only take food from Stephen. They form this close bond and it really affects him when this, uh, this young fighter passes away. Stephen had thought that after multiple resections of the infected leg, he might have saved him. And that makes us kind of save up a little bit of jeopardy here for anybody else who might still think that they've had surgery on Stephen's hands. We're in the tropics, we're in a dirty environment, and anybody could pick up an infection at any time here. Stephen then is late to Jack's meeting with the crew the next morning. And if it's grim in the sick bay, then I think it's going to be grim as Jack sits down and tells the hands really where they're all at. Jack is repeating points about how the hand's pay is going to continue. He's repeating what they've already known, which is that they're going to get compensation for spirits not served out. And wise move on behalf of Jack here to remind them that he's got their backs a little bit here. The crew is listening, standing exactly where they'd stand on the deck of a ship. And again, we've got Jack recreating the institutions of a ship on shore here. And looking at them, Stephen's glad that he could save Reed and Edwards, that's Fox's Clark, who are both in their positions because he's very aware, I think, of the jeopardy that everybody's been in and continues to be in. Jack says that everyone's heard of the Widow's Cruise, but nobody there has. We'll we'll stick a pin in that and come back to it in a second. Jack continues to say they didn't ship a Widow's Cruise on the Diane. And so... Mike, I I went straight past this because I I went straight to Jack's explanation that comes like one sentence this time from now. But what the heck then, tell us, is a widow's cruise? And what's the reference that Jack's reaching for here?
1: Well, I I had to jump into this because I'm listening to Patrick Tall and I'm going cruise, C-R-U-I-S-E, like a cruise ship. A widow's cruise, what, what, no, what is this? And something about a sailor's widow or something, but it's cruise, C-R-U-S-E. And it was like, oh, a widow's cruise, right? Well, this comes from the Old Testament, 1 Kings 17, I, I, I'd say verses 8 through 16, other people, you know, recount it differently, but it's a story about the prophet Elijah. God told Elijah to tell everybody that there's going to be this multi-year drought. It's not going to rain at all. And and he had prophesied Folks are running out of food, including Elijah over time. And God tells him to go see this certain widow and she'll provide for him. And and he asks her for some water and some bread. And she says, Look, you know, I'm gathering the last sticks together to take the last of my oil in my cruise, C-R-U-S-E, ah, a small pot, right, for holding okay. oil, and the last of my meal or we would say flour in a barrel. I'm gonna go make the last of our bread, and my son and I will eat it and die. And, and Elijah, I always love the prophecy. Well, you know, make me one first. And, and, but he does add, you know, if you do that, God says, and, and here's the, you know, the Bible verse, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. In other words... She'll have an inexhaustible supply of oil and and meal, so she could kind of make bread ongoing and, until it starts to rain again and everything. So sure enough, from the early 1700s or so, this term widows cruise is is used to meant an inexhaustible supply in 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 England there. It has a an engram peak of eighteen sixty one, but there are peaks, smaller peaks in eighteen twelve to eighteen twenty one. But it's still pretty rarely used. So not surprising that the crew has not heard of it.
0: Right. Fascinating. So uh, O'Brien's reaching so deep that not only are 20th, 21st century readers stumped, um, not only is Stephen Matjorn stumped, all of the crew are stumped as well.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Well, uh, this is where I got to next. Aubrey helps the crew and helps us out by explaining what this means. He says that means that tomorrow is St. Famine's Day. And I think we know about that. The crew absolutely understands that this means that they're going to run short of some of their vital surprise. There's comprehension, there's alarm, despondency, even extreme displeasure in their faces. And once again, Jack has thought ahead of this a little bit and he's got some reassurance. He says, it won't be the worst that I've ever known. Even though today is the last of the grog and the tobacco, they still have some biscuit. They still have a cask of Dublin horse. And Mike, I I don't know if that means actual horse meat or or far as a colloquial reference to dodgy naval beef stored in casks. But anyhow, it's clearly a reference to some relatively unsavory preserved meat that they've got in casks here. Slightly spoiled. Heaven only knows what slightly spoiled means if Jack is describing it in this way, optimistically. And the doctor, he says, may well knock down another island gazelle. He goes on to announce that Killick and the gunroom steward, whether they like it or not, will put all of the officers' alcohol stores into the general pool under double guard to be served out by lots to each mess. And this is a very, very astute move by Jack. He gets a laugh from the ship's company at the expense of Killick and the gunroom steward, who are looking disapproving. And that's a laugh that they haven't heard since before the battle here. So we're we're speculating here about what kind of flesh Dublin horse might be. Did did you manage to find anything else as, as we dug behind this, Mike?
1: You know, I, I couldn't find anything definitive. Uh, it may well just be, you know, like you said, it, it could be a little bit of a, you know, like the Irish penance. Uh, yeah. It could be, you know, some derogatory term for, you know, meat that's just not too savory here. It could, in fact, be salted horse meat. In fact, on a, a 2001 email exchange back on the gunroom servers, there was actually a little recipe on how to cook. Dublin horse, which made me think, well, then maybe it actually is horse here. Now, you know, and this was there just wasn't a lot coming up. But one fascinating hit that I got was from an English writer who actually lived and wrote a lot about Ireland. Charlotte Elizabeth was her pen name or actual name was Charlotte Elizabeth Tona. Yeah. And she wrote a number of books promoting women's rights, which would have been kind of right down O'Brien's alley, but also about evangelical Protestantism. Not so much down O'Brien's alley, here. <laughs> no. uh, but it, it, at least in terms of helping the poor and, and the, the cause of women and stuff, would have. But she's described as a woman of strong mind, powerful feelings, and of no inconsiderable share of tact. Uh, I can think of some O'Brien, uh, mm-hmm. female characters just exactly the same way. But it fascinated me that in one of her books, Personal Reflections, she writes about her young boy, Jack, and his adventure with a rocking horse in a Dublin toy store. And she says that whenever Jack heard the word Dublin after that, he'd say, good Dublin, good horse, small Jack, love, good Dublin horse. So I thought, you know what? And she was translated into many languages. I've... You know, have no doubt O'Brien would have tripped across her, even though she was very anti-Catholic in some of her Protestantism. Right. I, I think that this may or may not, we're going to hear this Dublin horse term again, referring right back to Ireland. And so yes. this Irish Dublin connection and Jack connection kind of thought, well, that just seems almost like too good to be a coincidence.
0: Oh, it just does, doesn't it. Huh. It's almost like you can imagine, maybe there was this one obscure book and maybe it found its way onto O'Brien's shelf and maybe that's just the one place where he picked up that connection. It's really fascinating right, right. to think about that. Well, Jack wraps up his optimistic, forward-looking speech to all hands by saying, God helps them who help themselves and points out how they're fit for shipbuilding supplies. He says, we still have Ned Walker and two men who are a carpenter's crew. They have sailcloth and cordage. They'll take nails and spikes from the schooner's ashes and build a six-odd cutter to send to Batavia for help. And one man points out that it could be that they'll encounter some bad weather. He says, there's the changing monsoon. How will we survive the changing monsoon over those 200 miles? Jack points out that Captain Bly had sailed 4,000 miles in a 23-foot launch, and the monsoon isn't going to change and cut in for a fortnight. So that's plenty of time to build a cutter and sail it 200 miles. In any case, says Jack, what's the alternative? Sit here and watch the sun go down on the last of the ring tailed apes? No, no. Be- better a dead dog than a lead lion. Uh, that is to say, uh, uh, and Jack's Aubreyism kind of tails off here. What was he reaching for, Mike, with the dead dogs and the lead lions?
1: Well, this uh, this is hilarious. So, in, in one small speech here, you know, now Jack's into Ecclesiastes nine four. So, chapter nine, verse
0: four. He's quite the biblical scholar and, this week, oh, Jack well, Aubrey, He really
1: isn't he right? is. I, you know, I've, I, he must have been hanging on with a lot of those blue light captains and admirals <laughs> here, because, you know, in, in Ecclesiastes, that that verse is about if you're alive, you have hope. So, I'll, I'll I'll use the the NIV version here. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. So,
0: uh. Not a dead
1: lion, but a dead lion. <laughs> well, well done, Jack, at least yeah. You know, we might not be hitting it completely, but you know it counts as a great Aubreyism and a fun romp back through my Bible here.
0: Oh, fantastic. It's having its desired effect. Jack's laid all of this out in the hope that not only... But remember, he's been preserving all the institutions of shipboard life to try and maintain the discipline. We've heard already from somebody else that there are some members of the ship's company who believe that when they're ashore and when the ship is sunk, the captain's authority goes. And Jack is clinging onto this very cannily. And it turns out that it has paid off. One of the highly respected, usually quiet folks' men cries out, three cheers for Captain Aubrey's plan. And the crew joins in. And Mike, it was that, (gasps) yes, they do John. He hasn't just got one cheerleader. He's got the whole crew or the most of the crew behind him. And they're still cheering as Stephen walks out past the burnt wreckage of the schooner to hunt for food. And Mike, it's very touching. We've got one naval family keeping itself intact and maintaining its spirits and maintaining cohesion. And Stephen now is back off out away from the family, hunting. And we're going to get some really deep, I think, reflections on Stephen and where he is and what he thinks about family. He notices something in the sea. Through his pocket glasses, he sees a young eight-foot dugong with her child, nursing the child, sometimes both of them upright in the sea, always gently caring for the child, even washing its face. And Stephen is really glad, he says, that the boat is still only a hypothesis. Otherwise, It would have been my duty to pursue the innocent Dugong. They're said to be excellent eating like poor Stella's sea cow or rather Stella's poor sea cow, the creature. And he wonders to himself whether the appearance of the Dugong and and others like her further out in the water mean that the season is about to change, which would be just what we don't need. Having heard the crew murmuring ominously about the monsoon season and about the fact that the Cutter's voyage is still ahead of them here. And, for my, I, I'm really noticing the fact that he's noticing not just a relatively innocent creature that he doesn't have to pursue, but he's noticing an innocent creature nursing a child. And my mind is going back to the fact that Diana back home is pregnant and right. Stephen has been really quite emotional at the idea that he's going to become a parent.
1: Yeah. And, and we've got this whole, you know, all these themes that have been running through here, you know, men in a nurturing role. Uh, kind of men's view of or role or capacity for nurturing you know children as, as you said, Stephen with his daughter here. and these continuing things of innocence, when to take a life, you know we'll yeah. we'll continue to see this coming here. And it's, and it's fascinating. I don't know if everybody remembers. we've we've run into a dugong before in the Mauritius command. Yep. Uh, and we talked a little bit about the difference between dugongs and their close relatives the manatees we might also remember back that when Stephen was commenting on Jack's weight and his ability to play handball like a Christian rather than a dugong in reverse of the metal <laughs> so we might remember too we talked about how a lot of the original reports of mermaids you know even on, on Christopher Columbus's crew are often attributed to dugong or manatee sightings like this yeah. mother and calf here so you know it does very much remind people back of the human connection there. Definitely, and it was interesting. Stephen ended this about you know uh, poor Steller's sea cow or Steller's poor Seacal. in the author's note that begins this book. Brian you know, says he's really grateful that you know he was trying to find information about Steller's Seacal and somebody had given him a translated copy of Steller's actual notes. Wow. And, and this is this is true. This goes back in history. This Georg Steller had a description in 1741 while he was shipwrecked on the Bering Island of this sea cow. He'd them Amazing. while he was there. Now, interestingly, Europeans really didn't know about them before that. And within 27 years of this publication and finding out about it, they were hunted to extinction. Hence, Stevens, oh. you know, poor stellar, uh, poor maroon stellar. Ah, uh, stellar's poor sea cow hunted to extinction going on here. But... You know, fascinating, and and just a great reminder for me of what kind of research does O'Brien do. I mean, my God, to get this translated thing on Stellar Sea so I can make this reference in one sentence. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's amazing, wow. isn't it? This one tiny little corner. So Stephen's really affected by the sight of the uh, of the dugong, and it takes him back to the world of nurturing and the world of children and family. I don't know where this is headed as I'm sitting here reading it, but good news is there's other motion and there's other life on the island here. Stephen thinks that he hears a pig rooting and it turns out to be the finest babirusa Stephen has ever seen. And Mike, this, this next sentence is really cold and a really clear juxtaposition between Stephen's really emotional attachment to the nursing animal and his ability to turn straight away to the clinical world of hunting. The Babarusa was as innocent as the dugong. He shot it dead without the least compunction. I might, again, these themes of how close life and death are, these themes of the the duality of Stephen's role as a saver of life, but also as the hunter and provider. Oh man, this reaches pretty deep. Um, Stephen goes back into the routine that we've heard about before. He has to gut and hang the pig. He uses his block and tackle to hang it up there in the trees. He heads off, to follow the trail that it in turn had followed to see where it came from, to see if there are others, because this is, this is precious resources. He believed that they'd almost hunted out the Babarussas, so maybe there are more where this one came from. And he realizes that puts him in the same territory as the bird's nest swifts. So he no longer resents them. He's, he's okay with the fact that they're swifts not swallows, that they have four toes. So he thinks, okay, I feel quite good now about going to see their vacated nests. He reflects, regretfully, that Reed, who now only has one arm, won't be climbing down to harvest the nests, but he gets a little moment of happy reflection that Reed's doing much better. He reflects on the power of youthful stamina and a cheerful mind and contrasts that with the bosun, who's middle-aged and sunk in gloom, and although he has a much less serious wound, is likely to take much longer to recover. Unfortunately, Stephen doesn't encounter another pig along the trail, so he gets distracted off fortuitously, I think we're going to say, to go take a look at the Swifts. And Mike, it turns out that we weren't that far away from the world of children and family after all, right?
1: Yeah, fascinating here. He comes to a patch of mud near the cliffs and sees a single child's footprint on the other side of the patch. And O'Brien writes, you know, either that child is preternaturally agile and left a clear eight feet was an angel setting one foot on earth, you know, and I, you know, I love that line. I love, you know, like you say, that the clear connection back in with other themes here and, and Stephen's thinking to himself, you know, we don't have anybody on the crew that has a foot that small. Well, he keeps on heading to the edge of the cliff, you know, where he had been laying before when we last saw him looking at these birds And there he sees seven baskets full of these bird nests, all collected and all kind of propped up with rocks so that they don't fall or blow away. Looks down, he sees there's a junk, uh, this big boat in the water below and boats going back and forth from the junk to the island. And then behind him, he hears all of a sudden these angry, challenging children's voices speaking in Chinese and Malay below him in the trees. Uh, There's a thump, a scream of pain, and a whale,
0: and this starts off sounding like it's grim, but actually it, it turns into the most charming, the most little bucolic encounter that we've got with this this little band of Chinese and Malay kids here. It's really, really lovely. He finds three small girls howling with woe, with woe, but not with injury, and a small boy groaning in pain with a bloody leg. And we get an idea of what they've been about because they have pads on their knees and elbows for cave climbing. So they've been after the swallow nests themselves. A girl explains that somebody that they refer to as Lipo. Lipo is clearly some kind of eminent figure in their community or their family. Lipo had said they could play after they would collected seven baskets. So they hadn't meant for the boy to get hurt. They're afraid of being whipped. They, I can just imagine this all tumbling out of this little girl trying to explain in her defense what's going on to Steven who shows up as the adult on the scene here. The stunned boy lets Stephen examine the damaged leg. He stops the bleeding. He cuts some splints. Very wise. He's going quite far with the dressing here. He cuts his thin jacket into strips for pads and bandages. The children tell him that the oldest girl and Mai, Mai and the boy are all brother and sister. And that Lipo, this person whom they clearly fear to some extent, is their father. And he's the owner of the junk. They've come from Batavia they bring back ore from Borneo, and they stop when the time is right and when the sea is calm to harvest nests at the right season every year. They've got pegs to climb up from below. They're doing this because only children can fit in the caves to reach the nests. Lipo's brother, we learned, had been too fat by the time he was 15 and been killed by Dayak pirates, which is a, a, a grim outcome if you're just a fat teenager. And maybe there's a sympathetic ear here, given the crew's recent trouble with Dayak pirates so Stephen tells Mai, Mai to climb down he tells her to go f- tell her father Lipo what's happened he's a medical man he explains with a group of 100 Englishmen in a fortified camp opposite the reef on the island's south side since her brother can't be lowered down because of this very grave injury to his leg Stephen will carry the brother around to the camp and meet Lipo there as soon as the junk can be brought around and he tells the other children that they can either go with Mai, Mai or follow him and this is a very smart little move. Lipo, injured child, there's a hair's breadth between injured child being looked after and hostage. right? <laughs> right. Stevens Stevens just on the right side of it. I love his tactics here.
1: Well, they they decide they're gonna go with him and and they do. The other girls are talking all the way, telling them stories about their friend's striped Dutch cat in Batavia, the plants in their garden, the engagement of their aunt Wong. And, and the price of edible birds' nests. Now, you know, they're talking so loud that the men in camp hear Stephen coming in with all these kids here. Uh, Stephen puts the boy down on their cot, and, and Ahmed is comforting the boy as Stephen tells Jack, there's a great deal to be said for the Confucian tradition. Jack says, well, you know, my old nurse used to always say the same thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, you
1: know, Stephen, but uh, never mind that. You know, you, you said you've got a Barbarossa. Where, where do we find him? <laughs> and, and then he thinks and he says, well, Stephen, what, why are you looking so pleased? And Stephen says, the tradition, or shall I say, doctrine of infinite respect for age. As soon as I told that worthy child to run along like a good girl now, she stood up bowed with their hands clasped before her and ran off. It was the turning point, the crisis. Either all was wrecked or all succeeded. Had she proved forward or stubborn or disobedient, I was lost. This is how I shall bring up my daughter. <laughs> Jack <laughs> replies, don't you wish you may succeed? Right? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm fascinated here. Clearly, Jack has no idea what's going on. Okay, we got a Bob That's good. We need it. What are all these kids doing here? And you are talking to me about the Confucian tradition here.
0: <laughs> and I, I love this kind of backhanded sympathy that he's getting from Jack. Yeah, good luck with that, right. um, Mike. This reminds me of uh, one of our favorite episodes of one of our favorite shows, The West Wing. There is an episode called Abu El Banat, which, which allegedly in Arabic means father of daughters which is an episode all about the struggles of men who have daughters. And Stephen has got a very, very rose-tinted view of how he's going to raise his daughter here. And Jack is going, yeah, good luck with that. All right. So Stephen gets on with fulfilling his duties. After he's kind of set up this great situation here with the kid and the father and the brothers and sisters, he tells Jack where to find the pig. Jack calls Bondon in and says, well, the doctor has saved our bacon and, and, and enjoying the delicious savor of this bacon-related pun sends Bonden off to collect the pig. And now Stephen gets to reveal the payoff for all this manoeuvring he's done with the kid and the leg injury and the junk and the father. Prepared to be amazed, he says. He Tells Jack about the junk and the children. His belief that the junk is going to take them all to Batavia since the owner's son is the one in splints. Stephen has paper money. He has notes from Yen to pay for their passage and still enough left over to buy a modest vessel in Batavia so they can keep their rendezvous with Surprise in New South Wales or before. And by the way, this is a really great adult-child relationship payoff for Stephen. And I'm remembering how how bitter and tragic it was when we had the Dill story back in HMS Surprise. This is a really nice moment. This is putting a smile on the face here. It's putting a smile on Jack's face too. He's delighted. He thinks about the winds. He thinks about how soon they can get to Batavia. And then with a vessel which will do at least five knots... When would they meet Surprise? He thinks, well, maybe earlier than the New South Wales rendezvous, you know, before we all fall back on our rendezvous on Australia there. He says, it's so lucky that Stephen was there when the boy broke his leg. And I, and I don't know if, I don't know, in my, in my mind, I imagine either Jack is completely naive to all of this and says, well, gee, this is you are really lucky that he was there. Or maybe Jack is saying it with that tone that goes, yeah, I think you might have maneuvered this situation a little bit, Stephen. Because Stephen says, well, broke his leg, but perhaps hurt is more exact. I can't completely certify that there's a fracture. And Jack says, but you have splits on. And Stephen just says, well, you can never be too careful about these things. Oh, look, he says, the breeze is freshening pleasantly. And (laughs) he can play Jack Aubrey like a cheap violin. Right. Well,
1: and, and with this comment about how the, you know, the breeze is freshening, Jack says, well, you know, Stephen, how big is the junk? And, and he sees this kind of this stupid look on Stephen's face. He says, no, no, I'm asking, you know, what's her tonnage? And Stephen says, well, you know, let's say maybe 10,000. And Jack smiles and says, well, Stephen, the surprise is only 600. How, how does she compare to the surprise? And Stephen says, well, the junk is wider and swims higher in the sea but, but, I'm sure there's room in the junk for all of our people and for the few things that we have left. So Killick says that dinner is on the table. And Jack asks if all their wine has been put into the common pool. Killick says, no, only enough for tomorrow's grog. And Jack says, you know, well, I want you to go get a couple bottles. And Ian, mm. you know, I think this all turns on an English accent. So <laughs> I'm going to have to put this wine order over to you here. Ah, uh,
0: the 89 with a long cork. This is, this is a great piece of Patrick O'Brien personal dad jokism here. To Stephen, he says, the O'Brien should go well with the Dublin horse. Ha, ha, ha. Ain't I a rattle? You smoked it, Stephen, did you not? No reflection upon your country, of course. God bless it. Mere lightness of heart. Chuckling, he drew the cork past Stephen a glass, raised his own and said, here is to your glorious, glorious junk, the timeliest junk that ever yet was seen. And besides bringing Dublin Horse back into the conversation here, he's giving Jack Aubrey the chance to make a pun on an Irish surname. O'Brien, being kind of a mangled pun on the name o'brien right and and mike this is not the only time in patrick o'brien's life that he's picked up and used this pun if we go back to dean king's biography of patrick o'brien a life revealed we have this moment where uh, patrick o'brien is sitting down to a meal in london with a gentleman called bill targ who is going to be the editor involved in o'brien's forthcoming biography of picasso you better choose the wine says the deferential american to o'brien the winemaker we ought to have the family wine said o'brien in a festive mood making a play on his name and that of the oldest great chateau of bordeaux O'Brien. targ says the uh, the text here never blinked they drank the expensive red wine and the two hit it off So the the punning of O'Brien and O'Brien was clearly something that was on O'Brien's mind. His biography was Picasso was was way back in the 70s, well before he got to this point. So he clearly had chuckled at his own wit sufficiently to hang on to it and whip it out. In a book, it turns out that it was this one.
1: (sighs) You just can't curtail wisdom like that. You can't curtail wisdom like that. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, the junk makes its way in. And Stephen goes with McMillan to check on the boy's dressing, and Stephen asks McMillan to you know pull him out two elegant splints and lots of white bandage, and McMillan's kind of you know working with the boy's leg, and he says, "Well, I, I can see a little bit of a sprain here," and he's kind of wondering why the splints. And Stephen says, "Well, it may only be an imperceptible crack, but it must be bound as if it were a most untoward compound fracture and covered." in an extensive balm. So, you know, it, it, Stephen is really going all out here to uh, to dress this wound up here.
0: Yeah, it, it's a very subtle little play that Stephen's pulling off here. I really, really like it. Jack has the breastwork bristling with armed men as Lipo walks up the hill. A, a nice little bit of carrot and stick here. On the one hand, he's coming to see his son who is in the hands of Stephen, who's tending to this terrible leg injury. On the other hand, he sees the stick, he sees all the weaponry and all of the uh, highly motivated, highly alert sailors and marines here as Lipo is walking up the hill. He brings small gifts for Stephen and he presents them to Stephen in, in very similar terms to the way Stephen had presented gifts to the monks at Kumai in the last book. O'Brien says that the boy could not have played his part better, moans, groans, rolls his eyes in anguish and shrinks from his father's caressing hand. Never mind said stephen his suffering will be less once we are afloat i shall attend him every day and when i remove these bandages in batavia you will find his leg perfectly whole (laughs) end of chapter two nice nice
1: yeah it's a it's a bad break but in three days it'll be all better as soon as you drop (laughs) us off at the governor's thank you very much
0: Well, Stevens complained from time to time about about charlatans in medicine, and that right there is absolutely how charlatans come to be. <laughs>
1: right, I want to reach reach back to our one uh, hundredth episode about Stevens' malpractice. Well, maybe we have one that might have jumped into the answer to that question, but all for good here,
0: all for good. Ah, uh, it's been a great chapter, but quite the uh, quite the roller coaster ride, Mike. Ooh, I
1: know. I mean, like we said, it just started off with that incredibly violent confrontation. And I'm trying to remember back. You know, I guess we've had some cutting out expeditions. We had some, you know, kind of pirates before. You know, pirates sort of swimming after boats, but not that long, intense, drawn out, multiple charges kind of thing here. It's it's one we had a little hint might be coming, but it was far more violent and extensive than I would have imagined. I, I thought of a small crew kind of coming back. Trying to sneak in and snatch the silver or something
0: yeah but it turned it turned out to be this big set piece a, a great day of glory for the professionalism and calm of Welby. a great day of glory for the tenacity and the uh and the gunnery skills of the crew but it could easily have gone the other way it was as somebody once said a damned near run thing right right well
1: and then you know after all that i mean we're just getting it over you know, Jack's giving that grim news about St. Famine's Day and boom, uh, the answer seems to fall right on our laps. And I'm having my usual O'Brien end of chapter thing go, really? Could it be that easy? I mean, <laughs> you know, we, we've shot the last Barbarossa and now this junk turns up and is going to you know, bring us straight to Batavia. You know, I, I, I'm wondering, you know, are, are there going to be more twists and turns to come? Are we ever going to see the deer surprise or South America again? you know, hopefully before book 21.
0: Well, Mike, I think there's only one way for us to take care of that. In the traditional way, I'm going to ask you right now, what do you say, Mike, to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien?
1: Well, I would have to say with all my heart. (laughs) ¶¶
0: remembered to rejoice that the powder had stopped beating. Sorry. (laughs) Remember, Remember to rejoice that the powder had proved sound, beating so hard it almost stopped his breath.